Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. And I, I loved every minute of it. I was given the opportunity to be as nuts as I wanted. I wasn't mad. <laughs> I wasn't insane. And I have huge fond memories of those four years. I'm very proud of what we did. I'm sorry that we didn't carry on the four of us. It wouldn't have happened if either one of us had not been there. It needed that collaboration and confliction between each other to make it work and that we believed in each other and allowed it to happen and experimented just to see if it would work. Just to see if it would work. You know, what would it be like if? (laughs) Folks, welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is a person you may not know the name of, but you will be familiar with his work. Uh, Charlie Thomas is with us today. He's uh, directed many rock documentaries, uh, but the the two programmes we're particularly interested in are This Is Pop, which is the brilliant story of of XTC, Um, and we're even more interested in uh, the other film that he co-directed with Roger Penny, uh, I'm Not In Love, of course it had to be called that, the story of 10TC, which first aired on BBC4 in 2015, and I'm sure many of you listening will have watched it as many times as it appears on iPlayer, because it really is great. The only thing wrong with it, of course, is it's too short. But we're kind of hoping to rectify that today. So uh, a very warm welcome uh, to the podcast, Charlie. Hi. Thanks very much, Paul. And hi, Sean. Hello. Um, it's so nice of you to join us today, Charlie. Thanks so much. Yeah, and, and congratulations to you guys, too, for flying the flag for, for these past few years, for, for these four brilliant guys who... And I'm guessing that we both came at this um, from the same standpoint, that we both felt that they were kind of undervalued, uh, unsung, really, compared with some of their contemporaries, and and that we needed to stand on the rooftops and and fly the flag for them. Um, Here, here. I do feel that um, between us, if we can be so immodest, um, things have started to change now, and, and, and I think that the guys from 10CC are starting to get their 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 due credit these days um and also thanks to 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 liam's excellent book as well you know i think all these things have have started to put them back on on the map where they should be i agree and um i I was going to mention liam's book because it's definitely part of a of a movement a kind of a a fan movement really isn't it charlie that paul and i definitely felt that there was a, a hole um no no pun intended there <laughs> insert but I, sound effect yeah insert sound effect <laughs> You know, the fact that we kicked off the podcast by talking about an album that nobody liked and nobody bought had a a, a sort of an arcane quality that Paul and I have have always been attracted to. Um, But it was a no-brainer to to go on and talk more about a band that we've loved for, you know, since our very early years. And there isn't enough talked about them, is there? No, no. Um, Before we go on, actually, I should say, um, forgive me if I sound a bit laid back because i am literally laid back where, with a, a bit of a back injury at the moment so um uh, do tell me if i'm um, sounding a bit comatose i'm so laid back and laid out i'm so caved in and spaced out i'm wide to the teeth i'm fused to the floor so baby don't you pop me no more don't you pop me no more 
No, no, and absolutely fine. And we're really sorry about the your, your aches and pains. Well, you can you can always um, call this episode Desert Island Slip Discs. Oh, <laughs> yes. Or the Sacroiliac. Oh, the Sacroiliac. Very good. And perhaps if it's not uh, being insensitive, you can do a version of Snack Attack for us because, of course, <laughs> Kevin recorded Snack Attack lying flat on his back, didn't he? I think when he had a back problem. You see, yeah, and you, I, think, I think Robert Plant recorded most of Presence fl- flat on his back, so oh, yeah. there are precedents for this kind of oh, thing. Oh, my word, my right, word. Right. Anyway. Yes, um, and, and you thought that that was an aside, Charlie, but I think I, I suspect that that little segment will uh, find its way to the end of the, of the podcast, to be honest. <laughs> but the edit is totally down to you, so y- y- you can be the judge. I, um, I had enormous pleasure this morning, Charlie, re-watching both of the films that Paul mentioned. They're both incredibly different stylistically, but they both do a perfectly appropriate and wonderful job of, of highlighting two of my my favourite ever bands, both in my top five. I wanted to just congratulate you in, in terms of your your vision for both of them and very, very different approaches, which seemed really, really appropriate. Would you be happy for us to, to dive straight into the 10cc film? Um, and we'd love to hear about your experiences um, in terms of coming up with the film conceptually and then, of course, meeting and, and filming the chaps. Um, yeah. How how did it first begin? What was the genesis of the project? I felt, uh, and this is going back, God, ten years now. Um, I at the time I was working as I had done for for many years as um, a sports presenter at, at Sky, um, but I was beginning to get slightly restless, um, and as well as sport, my other main passion has always been music. Um, and I've, I'd been talking to this uh, friend of mine, uh, Colin Burrows, who, who runs Special Treats, the production company, um, about the possibility of doing some music documentaries, because he'd specialised in um, films in the movie industry um, and behind-the-scenes stuff on James Bond films, that kind of thing. Um, and I talked to him one evening about perhaps doing something similar in, in music. Um, and we knocked around a few ideas, um, and the one that really stuck was 10cc. We just thought, well, how come no one's done this before? You, you know, it, it, just, it just seemed weird. And I had loved them, you know, right from um, pretty much the beginning. I mean, I, I remember, I, I was kind of the perfect, perfect age, Uh, So I would have been 11 when Donna came out and, you know, just followed them all the way through. And they seemed to, I mean, back in the 70s, they were big. They were big news. And and every time they released a new single, it was, was for me, it was an event. So I couldn't figure out why they just seemed to have vanished. So um, I said to him, look, leave it with me um, and I'll see if I can... Um, find out, you know, what we can do about this, whether whether the guys would be interested, first of all. So I had no idea how to get hold of Kevin, Eric or Lowell, but Graham seemed to be the point of entry because he was still out there. He was still touring um, as 10CC. Um, so I thought, OK, I'll I'll get in touch with his agents 
to see if they can get a message to him that we'd be interested in talking to him. So did that, um, and they came back and said, yep, Graham, um, be happy to talk to you. So I had a quick chat with him um, and said exactly what I've just said to you, you know, um, how come we, we kind of feel that your 10cc have been undervalued. Um, and he said, yeah, I think you're damn right. Uh, so I said, well, how am I going to get in touch with all the others? And he put me in touch with, with Harvey Lisberg, who you, you know well. And for those who don't, um, Harvey was um, the guy who managed Graham from the very beginning and then co-managed 10CC. Um, so I then called, I remember this quite clearly, I called Harvey from the car park at Sky um, in a break between bulletins one afternoon. Um, and he was in Palm Springs. Um, How did you manage to shake him off the phone in time to get back on the box? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I, 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 I soon came to know that, that, was, that you don't have short conversations with Harvey. <laughs> <No. laughs> um, but I, and so I laid out what I wanted to do, and he, exactly the same. It was kind of like pushing at an open door, really. You know, I, I think they all, as I spoke to each one of them, I came to to find out that they all felt kind of disgruntled. You know, they, they did feel, why, why have we um, not been given our um, credit? Um, mm. You know, we were the kind of um, equivalent of, of Queen in the mid 70s. And yet they're now regarded as one of the all time greats. Uh, and, and where are we? So Harvey then put me in touch with um, the others gave me their emails and stuff. Kevin and Lowell, both very happy to do it. The one I had problems with was Eric. Um, and that took months. Eric can be the nicest person you will ever meet, uh, but he can also be quite tricky. Um, and, you know, he's... It's quite sensitive and, you know, you'll just have to tread carefully. Um, and in fact, I've, um, I've still got some of our initial emails. So this was the, the, the first response I got from Eric. Um, he said, hi, Charlie, I've just been through all this crap with Universal Records who've just released this box set, Tenology, which you guys will remember. Yes. Um, which was actually, you know, I think it was one of the, one of the better box sets, but um, he was not happy with it because they'd done things like, I, I don't know if you've, you've had a look at the, um, the lyrics, the printout of the lyrics, but some of them are just um, ridiculous. I mean, he, he said on rubber bullets sergeant baker started talking with a bullhorn in his hand but they've printed it with a ballpoint in their hand full disclosure i i, I thought uh, for about 55 years of my life that it was ballpoint so <laughs> Did you? but that was not my fault oh <laughs> uh, i you know I, i'm heartened by that uh, and, um, and as i don't actually own the box set I, i've never actually studied the lyrics but i think i'm gonna yeah. have to get hold of them 
Oh dear, yeah. dear, dear, dear. And it also, he was really pissed off that um, they'd, uh, instead of putting out the the full six minutes ten of I'm Not In Love, they, they did the three minute 45. You know, on a box set, why would you do that? Yeah. You know, you've got time. Let it go. Let it run. Um, so, uh, you know, he signed off saying, who in God's name can you trust these days? So please understand me not wishing to get screwed again. You know, so I, I said, you know, I wrote back to him and said, look, all I want to do with this film is celebrate you. I'm not looking to dig up dirt. I really don't care. And this is exactly the same thing that I said to Andy Partridge when we came to do XTC. I don't care about the, the intra-band personality clashes particularly. I'm interested in, I love these bands. My whole point is to celebrate you. I want these to, um, to I want to turn people on to you. You know, I just, I'm really not interested in why the band broke up and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's not it's not really my concern anyway I kind of let him stew because clearly he was he was very wary um, of getting involved um, so I went off and did lol first fixed that up um, I managed to find uh, and when you're making documentaries one of the tricky things is finding venues to do the film the filming of the interviews because you've you know a it's got to look good and also it's got the, the you know you've got to have a, a place that's reasonably quiet so you're not constantly being interrupted and i thought i'd found the perfect place um at this golf course which is you know virtually walking distance from lol's house so he was delighted he didn't have to go too far the only problem was we found this really quiet room but we chose this day where these wi elderly women were having a bridge meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it's like their monthly bridge meeting. So halfway through the interview, um, suddenly we had all these women jabbering away outside the door. Um, and we, um, we had to go and ask them to, uh, to be quiet. Um, <laughs> it's funny you should say that, Charlie, because... Um, Kevin's room sounds a bit noisy in places. I was just going to say the the, the marvelous copy of of I'm Not in Love, which you recently kindly sent us. It's certainly in HD, and it, it seems just hyper clear, and yes. and you can see and hear everything. And yes, for the first time, I noticed a lot of background noise and cars and things in, in the background. Yes, that was was that in um, Dublin. That was in Dublin, and he. I, I mean, I. I'd suggested we do it at his house, but he didn't want to do that. It certainly was a, a chemical reaction, and we were lucky. Uh, but I think part of the reason it worked out so well is because we positioned ourselves so that no one could interfere. So he was working at the time um, in a, a rented office, and I, I think the, it was called The Cube. Um, and unfortunately, it was right next to a main road. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we sound baffled it as well as we could, but, uh, yeah, you could hear traffic occasionally, but luckily it wasn't so intrusive. No, not at all. I'm, and we're being a bit cheeky even, no, even I, I've referring never to noticed, it. To I, I, I've never noticed it before, but, you know, <laughs> the, you know, uh, preparing for this podcast, it sort of really went through it and watched it and listened to it very closely. Yeah. And, of course, everything is it, it's, it's very stylishly shot with, you know, with a, a black background so you can't really see where the guys are mm. yes well that that was a decision we took early on was why don't we just 
um, put a black drape behind the four members of the band and right, then put right. a you know a guitar or whatever it is behind them and then all the other interviewees that we get all the other talking heads can be um you know natural natural background so so, so that it sort of it separates them um so that that worked quite well um graham was the next one i did and i have to say by the way that lol was brilliant you know i i, I was with him for two hours it was a long interview um and i came away from that thinking geez if if they're all as good as this, we've got something special here. We wrote those songs because we wrote that, I don't know why we wrote songs like that, but what we were into was harmony. We liked singing, we liked testing our, and we had the facility, we had the time to try and get harmonies right. We didn't have anybody breathing down our necks. We just, we sort of gravitated towards that kind of stuff, just naturally. We've been hunting down LOL for, well, two years, I guess. And uh, we've how had, we've far had have you got with that? His son. Uh, his former manager, uh, his through a friend of a friend, kind of brother-in-law is related to Lowell Cream. It's that kind of that kind right. of degree of separation, yeah. um, and we got some feedback coming back, sort of secondhand, that he just wasn't interested in revisiting the past. But, yeah. but since then, we've heard him perform amazingly on the uh, the Kemp. Uh, podcast, which uh, whose title escapes me at the moment. Rock and Rock and Tours, I think. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And uh, Lowell was absolutely fabulous. Full no, of brilliant. full of of clear, lucid memories. Yeah, perfect for a podcast. So um, yeah. we, we've not given up, and yeah. uh, and and we've not given up on Eric. Uh, and until we manage to net both of those, Charlie, the, the podcast will never die. <laughs> <laughs> so then, then it was Graham um, up at his house in in North London, um, and as you as you know, he's he's lovely, charming, and uh, I would say he's probably got the best recall of the four of them. You know, yes. sometimes the others would kind of forget which song was on which album, but Graham's absolutely on it. Yeah. Um, you know, he's kind of like. Um, Bill Wyman was to the Stones, you know, he was their um, sort of historian, and yeah. and I think Graham yeah. plays a similar sort of role with 10 CC. He's 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 very good with his with his recall. Um, yes, and lovely guy too. So that was that was good. So now we had two in the bag, and then uh, I went over to Dublin and and did Kevin, um, and it was it seemed to it seemed to be snowing. It snowed when I interviewed Lol. And it snowed really heavily when I interviewed Kevin to the point where we very nearly couldn't get out um, that that evening. But uh, I found Kevin absolutely riveting to talk to. He's one of these people that um, you almost... There's something about the tone of the voice and the way they express themselves. You just hang on every word, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's just got a way of expressing himself that is just gripping. Yeah, Could, his, vocab- his, his vocabulary is, is fantastic, isn't it? There's that, there's that section where he's talking about the making of the first album uh, and he says how they did it in three weeks, you know, on, on your programme, Charlie, and he sort of finds word after word after word after word. Just pulls them out of his head, doesn't he? That's one small example. Yes, and he, he comes up just... with about six different words. Yeah, doesn't he? Yeah. 
Yes, um, that's right. Yeah. Um, he's like a sort of walking thesaurus. <laughs> yes. And the first album, I think, was written and recorded in three weeks, uh, which sounds crazy these days because people labor and craft and hone and carve, smooth and polish. We didn't, we just did it. <laughs> and it was all the better for it because what came out was pure us. But it's, it's never superficial. It's always, you know, it's it, perfectly at the service of what he's talking about. Yeah. Great. We, we found it an, an extraordinary experience, uh, briefly, Charlie, in, in that uh, he was perfectly funny, charming, friendly, uh, o- open to talking about every single subject we, we, we brought up in, in across about six hours. And yet there was this amazing intensity about the guy. Yeah, right. right. Uh, and when he played his new stuff uh, on his phone, uh, he played it to us, and we spent about 15 minutes listening to stuff. His eyes bored through us. Yeah. It was, honestly, it's the, it's the most intense experience I've ever had with, with another person. Incredible. I'm really getting a sense that as a species that, that we've kind of failed. Um, and if we do get, uh, if we're made extinct, then we probably deserve it. Um, it's it's just a confusing time to be alive. I'm kind of glad that I'm not a young man anymore because I couldn't agree more. Huh? I couldn't agree more. It's it's just so so odd. Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the the lyrical content is 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 about that sense of confusion and the absurdities of living in the 21st century now here, yeah. with with people like Donald Trump and and so on and so forth and the far right and. Yeah things you can say and things you can't say. You know, some of the things that I've loved in my life would never get made today. Mm. You, there'd be no Mel Brooks films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a Luck- similar... Did you? Was it similar for you, that intensity? Yes, I, I, I know what you mean. I could feel that if you... He wouldn't tolerate a stupid question, for instance. <laughs> Or if, if he figured that you didn't really know what you were talking about, he would clock on to that. Um, so I, I think, conversely, he figured out fairly early on that I did know what I was talking about, and I was a fan. So he then kind of relaxed, and he wasn't just talking to some hack who was putting together a documentary because, you know, it was just his job. He could tell that I was actually passionate about it. Um, so he was then prepared to... Um, to give of his best, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. He has got a great sense of humour, though, because one of our favourite memories is we we went. I mean, he spent six hours with us, and he we were getting tired and exhausted, but he seemed to be fine. And we broke for lunch, and we went to this cafe just down the road from the room we'd rented in Dublin, and and he was recognised. And he said that you know it's quite unusual for him to be recognised in Dublin or anybody to. And this, this nice guy who came up and actually provided us with a really good picture of, the, of our meeting, the only picture we have, just before he was leaving, this guy who took the picture said, oh, it's great to, great to meet you, love, love 10cc. Hey, I don't like cricket, I love it. And Kevin was absolutely fine. He just chuckled. He didn't seem to be in any way. Of, I mean, he's probably used to that sort of thing, you know, but it was quite amusing. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So, sorry, um, we digress there, Charlie. Yeah, sorry, Charlie. Yeah. Apologies. <clears throat> well, you know, so I had the three, um, but there's still the issue of Eric. Um, 
and so I thought okay now I'm going to go back to him this is about three months later um, and tell him look I've got the other three uh, would you reconsider he said he was still reluctant um, and in fact he said he didn't want to be involved in anything that involved Graham um, you know there is just this awful schism that's happened between them so I thought as a final throw of the dice I said well look why don't I send you the interviews that I've done so that you can see where I'm coming from I sent him Lowell's first uh, because obviously they're brothers, br brothers-in-law as, as well as um, you know they're, and they're still good friends he wrote back and he said it's superb exclamation mark send me the others so I thought oh hello maybe we're in here and he said send me Ke Kevin's next so I sent him Kevin's um, and he said um, it's very good Kevin's always been the one to call a spade a spade but at least you get the truth from him <laughs> okay <laughs> Um, There's a double-edged sword of a comment. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said, right, send me GGs. That is going to be the clincher. Um, so with, you know, slightly apprehensive, um, bated breath, I, I sent it to him. And he said, it's so-so, but it'll do. Um, <laughs> wow. About the way he, he's kind of producing or editing... Graham's yeah. interview, you know. <laughs> wow, well, praise, praise indeed. Yeah. Oh, crikey. Well, so I, I then said, well, look, um, would you be prepared to do it? And he said, let's talk. So he then called me and we arranged to meet at his house. And as soon as he was on board, he flipped from being really reticent and kind of antagonistic to being incredibly supportive so we did the interview and he was absolutely charming and from that point on he couldn't do enough to help he was like sending me photographs of him you know mixing the concrete when they were building strawberry studios um, he had all this sort of archive stuff that he shared it was it was great to suddenly have him on board really was because um, he, he couldn't have been more helpful his contribution is exactly as positive and and glowing and honest and warm as as all the other three isn't it there's no there's no sense of the bitterness no uh, and yet there, there's a bit of a twist in the tail to come on this but um so he he wrote to me the next day he said it was a pleasure to talk about the group to somebody who actually knows about the group and during our interview or towards the end of the interview i'd, I'd said to him you know, some of my favourite songs of 10CCs are the ones you wrote with Lowell. Um, and I always felt you, you kind of should have done more with him because they really didn't do many. But they were kind of really fun songs, the ones he did with Lowell. And he said, you yeah, know, that's true. I don't know why we didn't. Anyway, so he, he wrote back and he said, I had a really good rabbit with Lowell yesterday. And as you suggested, we're thinking of getting some ideas together. Wow. You know? Um, so I thought that would be great. It, as it happened, n nothing came of it, which is a shame. But, um, you know, it, it would have been really nice, I think, if, if they could have done that. Absolutely. Life is a Minestrone part two. Marvellous. I, I always thought so.
So you said there was a sting in the tail, Charlie. Are, are we going to come back to that at the end of the tail, perhaps? Yeah, I'll come back to that. Um, so, you know, we now have the four. And that from that point on, it's just a case of trying to find people who um, can talk about them. Um, and the, the problem, as you know, with 10CC is that they didn't work with anyone else. You know, it's not like you can, right. you can talk to, you know, their George Martin or you know, talk to other musicians that they work with. It was just them. That's a really good point. I've never thought of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. whereas, you know, most documentaries, there are plenty of people you can talk to. Um, Rick Wakeman. I had to... <laughs> I had to kind of go slightly outside of it and, and try and find musicians that they'd work with either before or after, because this is the other thing I wanted to do, which I thought was what made it such an interesting story. I didn't want to just focus on 10CC. I wanted to show the breadth of what all four of them had done outside of 10CC. You know, I just thought, how many people know that Graham had this career in the 60s as a phenomenally successful songwriter before he went to 10CC. I bet a lot of people don't know that. I also, I bet a lot of people don't know that Eric uh, was part of the Mindbenders and, you know, had these smash hits in the 60s. Um, and then, of course, you go on to uh, Godly and Cream's um, videos in, in the 80s. So I thought it had a really interesting arc uh, as a documentary. That, you know, I just thought this is... This this is a, a killer story, really. Yes. And and it feels very much like you're doing great justice to everything that comes before, during, and after. Um, it's wonderful. And the fact you kick off Graham's songwriting segment with "You Stole My Love," uh, which is one of my very favourites of, of Graham's sort of pre-10CC stuff. I, I love that aspect and. As soon as I heard that, I thought, yeah, now this, this film is going to hit the nail right on the head. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah, I, I mean, we were quite careful. And, and Roger, um, as you mentioned, um, the brilliant editor that um, I've worked with on many of my films. He, he's, he's, he's absolutely fantastic at finding the, the appropriate song or the right bit of archive footage. He, he's just really great at that. Um, and the, the only problem with that, of course, is that it cuts down the amount of time that you can focus on 10cc. Yeah. I, I mean, I would have loved to have had at least a, another half hour um, so that we could take longer and, and do a bit of a deeper dive into 10cc's career yeah, um, of course. but you kind of have to sacrifice something if, if you're going to make a um, you know the, the the story has to be the key the key to it really um, yes. and, and the danger with going too deep into 10cc is that you satisfy the the, the fans like us but you may risk losing the, the floating voter if you like um, yeah. whereas a you know a tight 60 minutes, keeps everyone interested. 
Yeah, I thought it was it was brilliantly done, and inevitably the the peak, the high point, and the bit where you sort of really expanded, of course, was the story of I'm not in love, which was all you know that is the the mountain top, if you like, or four of them contributing to this song, and um, and I don't know how many minutes you spent on that, but it, it had to be the thing that was looked at in the most detail, and it, it really worked. Yeah, so we got. I managed to get hold of Graham Nash, which was quite a coup, actually. Yeah, that was another noisy room. Where did you get hold of him? That <laughs> unfortunately it was down to the um, was the, 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 was the mic not working. The German cameraman, because we were in Bonn, um, uh, had failed to turn on the um, the mic. Yes, it's very roomy sounding, isn't it? Yeah. So unfortunately, the only uh, mic that was working was the 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 camera mic um which was really quite annoying but there's nothing we could do with that yeah because he was he was at graham was over in in bonn um with crosby stilson nash um oh. doing one of their periodic reformation tours before they all fell apart again as they always do yeah i i, I noticed again this high definition thing i noticed things i've never noticed before and i think i'm right correct me if i'm wrong hasn't nash got a picture of crosby sitting behind him <laughs> well the reason for that is because yeah. as as well as doing this tour he had um an exhibition of his photographs because oh, he's got this sort right, of right. um this hobby um semi-professional hobby of taking photographs um so there's there was this exhibition um in bonn uh of his of his work and okay. um, and that was one of them and they're very good actually yeah i love that interview actually there was such fondness wasn't there um there, there, an, an utter warmth in his big toothy grin he he clearly loves the band there's no doubt about it that uh, we recognized in graham gorman that he was really a formidable writer and that little kid that we met changed my life for the better you know because bustle was a, a smash for the hollies look through any window it was a smash for the hollies and that set us off on a trajectory that we're, I've been on ever since, you know. So in, in a very profound way, Graham Grubman ch changed my life, no doubt about it. He's a good kid. We knew that the moment we met. Yeah, I think so. And and, and grateful too, you know, because, yes. um, you know, Bus Stop was the one that, that broke them in the States. You know, yeah. it, it just took them to another level. So I think he was, um, no, he was a lovely guy. I really enjoyed meeting Graham, actually. Um, and then uh, flew over to the States to interview Harvey um, and I'd been trying desperately to get hold of Stuart Copeland um, and right. I'd been to in, um, emailing his manager and it'd been going backwards and forwards and backwards and we hadn't really got anywhere um, but while I was um, in LA I Literally the day before I f was due to fly back, I, I dropped an email to his manager again and said, look, I'm in the States. Is there any chance that Stuart's available? And completely by chance, he was, he was available the next morning. So, I mean, that was a real stroke of luck because Stuart's great on camera. You know, he, he had some lovely stories about um, the latter stages, obviously, you know, working with Kevin and all on, on the videos. Um, yes. And you know he's got a lovely energy when he talks, so he he gave it a nice kick towards the end of the the film. Um, Harvey was great, obviously, um, and then 
we interviewed Gambo because I kind of felt it needed his expertise um, to place. I think it's always quite useful to have someone who can place a band in in context. You know what what their achievements are, where they stand yes. in the pecking order, that kind of thing. And and there's no one better at doing that than Gambo. Problem was, just after we'd, I think it was pretty much the the last one we interviewed, Operation U Tree thing happened, and oh, yes. he was investigated by the police. Um, and so that went on for a year. And so while that was going on, we were like, well, you know, we can't risk, um, you know, if he is charged or something, this does progress. You know, there's no way we can have him in the film. Um, so we discussed this and I said, well, look, why don't we get someone else um, that, you know, if we need, we can replace Gambo with. Hopefully we don't have to. Um, so it struck me that Tim Rice might be quite a good one. I We're both members of the Cricket Writers Club. Okay. <laughs> and so I had his email address. So I dropped him a line and said, look, do you want to do it? And he, he, was, um, he was happy to do it. So we got Tim involved. Uh, I didn't tell him that you're here as a substitute for Gamba. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think he'd, he'd probably go for that. Um, but actually, Tim was so good that we, as you know, we kept him in anyway. I do remember one or two articles about Graham Gorman in the very early days saying, you know, he's written four or five mega hits for other acts, but he can't seem to write one for his own band, which was the Mockingbirds. And they were a good, good group, but for some reason, the other group seemed to nab the really commercial songs. But he had enormous variety in his songwriting way before he began displaying that in 10cc. Graham was a top-rate writer. He may not have realized it at the time because he was so young and he was just doing it as his job. But the fact is, he has one of the best catalogs in this country and he should be recognized for that. Well, they're, they're both of them are so marvelous, aren't they, Charlie? We, we, and of course, Paul and I have spoken to both of them and they, they deliver these masterclasses in off-the-top-of-your-head encyclopedic um, summary, <laughs> don't they? It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they both have that um deep knowledge yeah, yeah. Um, of of pop music and happily gambo that whole thing fizzled out after a year and and it came to nothing although it, you know obviously it had ruined 12 months of his life which he'd never get back but we were able to keep him in so that that was great and then the the icing on the cake was that we got Kathy Redfern yes how did you how did you approach her well, nobody knew where she was. Nobody right. even knew if she was still alive. It was extraordinary. Absolutely no one knew. And there were rumours that she emigrated to Australia. So we were like, it would just be so great to get her because that would be like a real scoop. And it was Harvey who tracked her down through friends. And it turned out that far from having emigrated to Australia, she was living in Stockport. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Honestly, that moment, uh, you know, um, for those uh, listening who, who haven't seen the film, it's possibly the money shot of the whole film, isn't it? Because she still sounds exactly the same, she doesn't she? Does. That's that's the thing. She does. It's it's absolutely <clears throat> jaw-droppingly brilliant. You come to the godly and cream moment again. What should we do next? 
Just as we said that, the secretary at the studio, Kathy Redfern, popped her head round the door. She said, Eric, there's a phone call for you. And then they said, that's it. So I immediately turned round and ran back to the reception area. I thought, no way. Um, and Lowell came after me, actually, and took me in and uh, said, we want you to do something for us. All the time I'm thinking, no, I can't sing, I can't do this. And I remember Kev came in with me into the studio and they said, you've just got to whisper. Be quiet. Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Big boys just don't cry. Big boys don't cry. It's so nice, isn't it, to, to be able to put a face to that voice that we all have heard so many times. Yeah. And she looks fresh as a daisy, doesn't she? She looks amazing. Yeah, she looks great. She was so chuffed to be part of it, actually, I think. Um, and she also told me that she was, they used her again on the How Dare You album. And it was, it's either, I can't remember, it was either the voice that goes right at the beginning, which goes, how dare you? Um, or it's the voice that goes, hello, on the phone call on Don't Hang Up. Uh, well, I know that Kevin's, Kevin Sue is definitely one of the voices. No, I'm not sure which one it is either. I can't remember right. which one it was now, but I think it may be the one that says "How dare you" at the beginning. I think so because I, yeah, I think it's Sue that says "opens don't hang up," but I could be wrong. That's an interesting tidbit. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Hello. Did you approach Neil Sadaka? Yes, I did. Um, and yeah, yeah, he didn't come back. Right. I mean, this is always one of the frustrating things with making documentaries. You do get a lot of knockbacks from people course, that you, yeah. you want to be in. So, yeah, uh, that would have been nice. Yes. But, um, you know, I guess it, it would have been fairly fleeting part of it. Yeah, so we had the film, um, and because I was working at Sky, um, I dropped a line to the guys at Sky Arts and said, look, got this film, would you be interested? And, and they said, yeah, um, sounds good. Um, and I said, well, how much can you pay us? And they said, um, well, we haven't really got much of a budget. How's three grand? Uh, and I was like, three grand? That would barely cover the rights to I'm Not In Love. So that ran straight into the buffers. So I then had to slightly, in a clandestine way, go to the BBC uh, as, as a staff member at Sky. That's not something I was um, able to... Uh, I had to keep that under my hat a bit. Um, it took forever persuading the BBC. I mean, they seem to have this attitude as, oh, well, they're kind of old news, old hat. Why would anyone be interested? Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, they just would not get it. It literally took about a year. And finally, I went via Eagle Rock, um, who made a lot of rock documentaries. Yeah, um, the classic albums they do. That's it, exactly. Yeah. Um, and showed it to them and said, look, you know, we're having real problems getting the Beeb on board. And they said, well, this is a great film leave it with us and and you know they were able to go straight to the top um great and um and then we were off and running i think it was almost exactly three years 
that we filmed Graham. That was the first thing we did, actually, before we did any interviews. We filmed Graham and the band at Guildford. Ah, that was your film. I wondered, because it was so beautifully shot. That I wonder where wonderful, that had come wonderful from. segment. It was quite nice, actually, because not only did he do um, the full band 10cc um, performance, before that, he just did an acoustic section where he played all his 60s hits. Yeah. I think it was called Heart Full of Songs. Yes. Um, so we were able to, to film that. Um, that was the first thing we did. Um, and, yeah, so we used that. Sorry, that was concert footage. There was there was a concert. It was a concert with an audience and everything. and yeah. you just filmed it. Okay. Yeah, that was that well, was in Guildford. Have you got the whole thing filmed then, including the ten cc set? Uh, yeah, we will will have um, because I mean that was beautifully shot. I mean that could be that that, that should go out on a Blu-ray, shouldn't it? Really? Well, there, there was a problem with the the the, the band footage. Um, there there was some kind of vibration with the sound. Um, okay. I don't quite know what, what went wrong there. We couldn't really use it. Um, right. But the acoustic stuff was fine because, you know, there was far less um, distortion on that. Yes, yeah. But, yeah, we did film the whole thing, I think. Um, then, right, literally the week of the um, transmission, I got a, an email from Eric saying... He was going to get his lawyers onto us. What? Mm. Um, he he'd suddenly decided because I sent him a rough cut. He decided that there was too much of Graham in it, um, and he wanted nothing to do with it. He wanted his his part cut out. And and clearly you'd been meticulous. I mean, you you may not have got a stopwatch out, but you could tell it would it would have been a balanced. Everybody had equal time, basically. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And there was absolutely nothing in it that was derogatory towards Eric at all. No. Quite no. the opposite. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, I mean, I just thought, well, it's, it's too late now. You know, this is going to go out. Um, and on what possible grounds could he sue us? Yes. You know, um, he signed the release form. So we just went ahead um, and never heard from him again. Um, wow. Well, well, well done for just sticking to your guns. It, it, it is sad, though, isn't it? Eric, um, well, I mean, it, we can't really fathom where he's coming from, but he's, he was clearly so hurt by his experiences way, way back, you know, right to the initial split. Uh, when it was three against one, and he was he was kicked out. That thing about where they had the meeting and said the three of them were going to go off, right? Yeah, right. Um, you know, prior to consequences. Mm. And, and I'd never heard that story before, and I, I was listening to it, thinking, "Can this really be true?" But of course, you know, it's kind of been corroborated since. Yes. Um, but I didn't. That was exactly the kind of thing I didn't want to put in the film. Yes. Yes. Um, because I just I didn't want to get involved in that kind of tangled web of yes business. you know I wanted the film as I said to be a celebration so maybe Eric you know Eric may have been pissed off that I didn't put that bit in I don't know but what what did he what did he tell you about that meeting in seventy six he got a call from the management um, to come up to Manchester he went up there 
and everyone was sitting in this room waiting for him and he sat down and, and he said they told me that um, they didn't want me involved anymore um, and that they were going to carry on without me. He said I was just totally gobsmacked and I drove back south in a kind of daze, told my wife and he said for the next week or two um, he just really didn't know what to do. Um, and then he said he spoke to the manager of Pink Floyd. St um, Steve O'Rourke, was it? That's Steve? the one. Yeah. That's the one. Um, who he was friends with. And Steve said, look, you are the, f the voice of 10CC. Don't let them do this to you. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can basically take the name 10CC with you. Um, as it turned out, Kevin and Lowell decided to go without Graham. So the whole issue was kind of resolved, but obviously in the long run it wasn't resolved because yes. that, that schism between Graham and Eric was never fully resolved. I mean, how could it have been? No, absolutely. And um, if you don't mind, I've got just a couple of observation stroke questions. Talking of the meeting, Paul, am I right in thinking that when we asked Kevin and Graham and Harvey about that meeting, none of them could remember anything about it? Chose not to. I, I can't... I can't actually remember what, what we asked. Yeah, obviously Eric would have a much more vivid memory of any meeting like that because... It, 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 it rings true. I mean, he said exactly the same thing in his, in his book and you can sense his, his shock. And in fact, I have found a couple of press reports at the time where Lowell, I think it was, said, uh, you know, openly when he was talking about consequences, originally it was going to be the three of us and mm. then we decided. So I, I have no doubt that, 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 that that's the way it transpired. Yes, it, yeah. it did ring true. And, I mean, oh, kudos to you, Charlie, for uh, not dwelling on any of that during this <clears> film. But it's interesting that there there's an, a very, very slight subtext. If you analyse... Eric's delivery of the different names of people in the band. And, and what struck me was that I don't think he ever refers to Graham by just his first name. And at the point where he's talking about how things really fell apart after his accident and after Bloody Tourists, he calls him Gouldman. And that, that was a key moment. And, and that, that must have been very palpable for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, he could be quite domineering in the studio, you know, because he was a perfectionist, you know, just want to get things absolutely spot on. It's possible that the others had maybe had enough of that. You know, clearly when Kevin and Lowell went off to do consequences, they didn't ask. Well, before they even were thinking about consequences, it was initially just to do what, like a single, wasn't it? A double-sided single demonstration yes. of the gizmo the very fact that they didn't ask eric to engineer that is in itself quite revealing isn't it because after all yes. you know he was the one who was involved in you know way back in neanderthal man mm -hmm. it is although i think that also coincided with eric uh, setting up strawberry south so in its in itself that, that you know that may not have been a factor right that that was sad but the the really nice thing um, when the film came out 
was the reaction from the other three and from the press. Mm. Without, you know, I think literally every single national newspaper um, before the film was shown, they had it as their pick of the week or pick of the day. Um, so there was this great sort of build-up to it. I, I was astonished, actually, at how much um, press coverage it got prior to transmission. Um, and then afterwards, the day after, in The Guardian, there was one review from Sam Wollaston, the TV reviewer of The Guardian. He said... I used to be ever so slightly embarrassed about loving 10cc. I now realise, after seeing this excellent documentary, that I was silly to feel embarrassed. You know, and I just thought that is exactly what, what, we were, what the film was made for. Yeah, perfect. Um, and, and then Kevin sent me an email. We came over in your film as intelligent guys, not desperate throwbacks, and I hope once and for all have dispelled the guilty pleasure tag um, in, and you know Lowell said something pretty complimentary Graham said thanks for the great 10cc doc I've had wonderful feedback from so many people so it was really gratifying um, to get all that oh that is really it's, really fantastic it's fantastic and although we, the four are not united they are and justifiably united in their pride in what they've done and accomplished aren't they yeah and 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 all and okay eric didn't respond to you directly after the film i guess but i'm sure he enjoyed i mean how could he not you know mm. it, it was it's such a it's such a, a, a i hope that you know his family and he's got quite a big family you know they yeah. i presume they would have watched it and and said, look, you come out of this pretty well. So, yeah. you know. And it was so important the film was made at that time. While, I mean, okay, we're very fortunate that all the protagonists are still with us. But you never, you've got to get, these documentaries have to be done at the right time. You're probably familiar with the history of the Eagles film. Um, I don't know what, which is, again, a superb film. I mean, it's it, it's also lot. It's longer, which is great. But it was done with all the protagonists there, and you know, Glenn Fry no longer with us, and uh, so it was so important that you made this film. So you know, th thanks for doing it. It it was the, the the one thing that that they had with the Eagles is there was quite a lot of footage of yeah. them in the studio and performing and all that kind of stuff. We had very little visual stuff to work with. Right. Um, so that that was a bit of a um, a challenge um, finding the very very ropey footage of the Dean and I um, <laughs> stuff uh, yes. w w was actually really helpful but I've subsequently yeah. seen a, a, a much cleaner version of that on YouTube which really pissed me off I was like why couldn't we have that when it when we were looking for yes yeah, we couldn't track it that we couldn't track down the original I no, think, yeah, there is there is a better print of that, isn't it? Yeah, um, isn't much better. Rather, yeah. Some, but, it, I, you know, it, that helped. And, it, you know, it was also one of their sort of key songs. Funnily enough, you know, I was thinking about when I got into the band um, and that sort of sequence of singles. And I mentioned Donna when I was 11, which made... You know, and 72 was this really interesting year because, in my view, there'd been sort of several years of quite dull... You know, things had moved towards albums and the singles chart had become quite dull. And then suddenly in 72, 
the singles charts suddenly became full of really interesting stuff again. You know, yes, Bowie yes. was breaking through, Elton John was breaking through, Roxy, Alice T-Rex, Cooper, T Rex. Yeah. And in amongst all this sort of melting pot appeared Donna. And I was like, oh, that, that's interesting. I wasn't quite sure if I really loved it, but it just made it sort of, it was on the antenna, you know, you go, okay, there's, there's some, something to watch. And then Rubber Bullets comes out and you think, yeah, um, th- this, this is a band definitely worth watching. Um, but at that time, you know, you, you had a limited amount of pocket money to spend. So you had to be really selective in what you spent your money on. Um, so you had to kind of, it was almost like, backing a horse you know once you'd made the decision to invest in a band you were really committing to them and you were like okay i'm backing you guys now you better deliver (laughs) you you better not disappoint me um and it was it was when wall street shuffle came out that i really thought okay this is a band i'm going to commit to Uh, because i just thought it was almost like a different band actually because you know, Rubber Bullets was... I, I, I liked it a lot, but I didn't like the drum sound on it. Um, I've always had a bit of a thing about drum sounds, and it, always, it sounded a bit thin to me on that one. It slightly put me off. And then Wall Street Shuffle comes out, and it's got one of the great drum sounds on it of all time, and it still sounds great now. <laughs> Fabulous, the sound of that record. It was like, is this the same band? Well, it, I'm sure you know this, Charlie. It wasn't the same kit. Kevin was using, uh, for the one and only time, using Jerry Conway's kit on that record. I'm yeah, sure you know who, who, who I later met when I did a film about Fairport Convention. Oh, ah, wow. okay. okay. Yeah, so that kind of explains it. I love the whole grittiness of the, of the Sheep music album. It's yeah. a very different beast, isn't it? It is. It's... It, it's do you know what? If, if you've got time, I've got I've got a bit of a, a hobby of mine is re-sequencing albums because I sometimes think musicians are brilliant at obviously coming up with the music, but they don't always sequence albums in, in the best way that they can be. Ooh, controversial. Yeah, so I think both sheet music and particularly original soundtrack are uh, sequenced wrong. Okay, so um, sheet music doesn't need much of a tweak, but for me, Hotel belongs on side two, conceptually and musically, and Silly Love belongs on side one. Uh, Let me explain. Silly Love is, if you slot it where Hotel is, you've got three songs which are all about being in a band or the process of writing. So you've got... um, the worst band in the world it's about being in a band and, and the ego then you have silly love which is about trying to write love songs and then you've got old wild men which is about being in a band in your dotage so those three kind of run together and then if you stick hotel on side two every song there is to my mind, based in 
foreign climbs. We'll get a golden island in the sun made of coconut. Interesting. And you'd, you'd kick off side two with somewhere in Hollywood. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly that would, what I would do. So you great, start, great start in LA. Yeah. yeah. Then I think you'd go to Baron Samadhi. Yeah. Um, so you, you're, you're now in Jamaica or wherever. Jamaica. Yeah. yeah. Then I'd stick hotel, um, which is on some unidentified island. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, then sacroiliac to me always sounds like it's at some beach bar. So yes. you could still yes. be in the Caribbean. Yeah. And then you fit, finish up with, oh, in the desert, yeah. you're in the Middle East. Oh, it's, it's like a sort of half of bloody tourists few years before almost isn't it it's a wonderful yeah that, it makes absolute sense i mean when you started this whole premise five minutes ago charlie i thought this is just sacrilege but you're right <laughs> you're not wrong but what about original soundtrack then you wouldn't yeah, kick, you wouldn't kick off with paris i would kick off with paris but right. i would not follow it with i'm not in love now there's a couple of reasons for that if you as they did kick off with the two monster tracks the rest of the album is inevitably an anticlimax. Which, of course, it follow. is, isn't it, if we're it honest? Is. Yeah. It just tails off. Yeah. You know, it'd be a bit like starting Sergeant Pepper with A Day in the Life or something. You know, you just can't... It, it just doesn't make sense to me. But also, texturally, um, you've got Night in Paris, which is basically piano, bass and drums with vocals, followed by I'm Not in Love, which is electric piano um, and mass, mass vocals. Yes, and al al well, almost a non-existent guitar part. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. there's no guitar played in anger until the final track on side one. So to me, it, it desperately needs some electric guitar before then. Yeah, pal a palate cleanser. Yeah, so I, the way I would do it would be to go something like Night in Paris. And the great thing about Spotify is that you can do this. You can make your own playlist of how the album should be. And it kind of reinvigorates albums for me. That's one of the reasons for doing it. Um, because different tracks next to different tracks as, as the way they are on the album kind of brings them to life a bit. So you could yes. have Night in Paris followed by Second Sitting for the Last Supper, uh, then Brand New Day, and then Blackmail. So that's side one. Right. Then side two, you could probably kick, kick off with I'm Not In Love. Uh, into Minestrone, um, and then... Film of My Love. Flying Junk. And Flying uh, Junk. Flying Junk, yeah. flying junk and, then, and then Film of My Love. You know, it's still not perfect, but I, I, I think it just it, it works better that way. I personally, whilst we're having these, you know, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd throw out film, film of My Love and replace it with Channel Swimmer. Which I think yeah. is one of the great lost tracks, but you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've I've got an even crazier one for how dare you? Oh come actually, on, do it! Let's hear it. How how dare you? Um, actually, I think works fine as it is. But I had this bonkers idea um, that you could make it into a kind of concept album, um, going through. Um, so you'd start with. Um, I'm trying to second guess your concept here. Would it be like the the journey of a of a love affair or, or a person yeah, from childhood it, to death kind of thing? Yes, exactly that. Mm, um, okay, and, and it's it's someone that is slightly bipolar. Okay, mm -hmm. so <laughs> this is getting so more you, and more interesting. <laughs> okay, so you start with Headroom, which is a teenager, you know, um, sexual awakening. 
Um, then you go to Lazy Days, which is basically a, a student um, doing tooling, not tooling around doing nothing. Yeah. Dreaming about his future. And in my mind, he's an art student. You know, he's thinking yeah, about, you know, what is, what is future. Yeah, I see him as, as Ben in The Graduate, actually. Yeah. 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 Something like that. Yeah. Um, then um, he's out into the world and he's dreaming about, you know, his ideal girlfriend. That's Mandy. Right. Um, whether he actually meets her or not, I'm not sure. But um, next comes Rock and Roll Lullaby. He's got married. He's got kids. It's not necessarily all sunshine. And then it's done. Don't hang up. The marriage has failed. So his his ideal girlfriend. He's. It's almost like he's he's punched above his weight, and it, it hasn't worked. And the girl has just. She's left him. Ah, uh, um, lovely idea. And then. And then, things turn dark. Because <laughs> you then you have this transition. And you have "How Dare You," the instrumental, which is the is the transition, and then the dark side comes out. He's now this bitter, jilted lover, and he's now iceberg. And he's like, <laughs> you know, I I've fallen in love with an iceberg. He's turned against the wife, and she's, she's this cold. Cold-hearted woman. Oh, brilliant! And, and now churning out music just for art's sake. Well, yeah. It's, it's, so I think the next one is he's he's rejected all his his idealism, and he's like, I want to rule the world now. I'm just going to go and make money, and he ends up, you know, art for art's sake. He's probably moved into marketing or something. <laughs> rejected all his all his ideal um, things about being an Fabulous. artist. So you've turned how dare you into. Roger Waters' The Wall, basically. It is. It? It's, it's some mad conceptual thing. Wow. Did, did, did you ever bring any of these ideas to any of the members of the band? No, I didn't. Oh, I'm you, sure I, Eric would be most receptive. <laughs> I really ought to get out. Lovely. I, I, yeah, I love it. I'm not sure about kicking off an album with Headroom, to be no, honest. No, that, that's, that's the only thing that doesn't quite work. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, maybe but, rock and um, roll lullaby actually, because you, you could kind of, yeah, because at least there's a kid in it. Uh, wonderful. Yeah. Just give me some hair, room. Just a little bit of hair, room. I need a ball, room. Up against the wall, room. I need the rest. Oh Lord, I need the rest. Who came up with the idea, for example, of the interactivity between? the band on screen and the soundtrack like when Lowell swipes his hand and stops Johnny don't do it <laughs> and when that's Roger uh, th there's so many they're subtle but they're really great that's, little touches that's brilliant isn't it it is and when there's things like I only noticed them when I looked at it in more detail uh, when Lowell is talking about recording Neanderthal Man he says even Kevin was beginning to fade and it fades and sure enough Kevin Fades. You've really got to watch these things a few times. But I mean, some people may never notice them. But I'm so glad you you went the extra mile and put those things in. Absolutely. And Paul, yeah. there's there's that wonderful bit that you you mentioned years ago, perhaps in uh, one of our first pods. It's it's right in the end credits, and there's that just heart stopping juxtaposition of Kevin singing Old Wild Men live, presumably at the BBC 74, I guess. 
and then yeah. you've got Kevin now on the other side of the screen. Yeah, the and grizzled old wild man. Yeah. It is so, so poignant. Touching, yeah. I know. I mean, that song is just, it had to go there, didn't yes. it? Yes, yes, yes. And I'm sure a lot of people would never have heard of it, but yeah. Yeah. It, just, it just felt so, so right mm. to, to put it there. Um, I would love to have had more about consequences um, <laughs> in the dock. Um, I mean, it was lovely that Lowell, he found the original um, gizmo in his attic. No. Literally oh. about two days before we did the the interview, and he said, "I haven't, I haven't seen this for like forty years." My oh, God! Wow! And, and he all, brought he brought it down the golf club with him. He brought it down to the <laughs> golf club, and it was all rusty. You know, yeah. I mean, there's no way it's going to work um, now. No, but I, was but that, that was such a treat. Um, it was so lovely to to see the original. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. yeah. And e- even the footage from from what they did on the BBC is it's marvelous to see the ever ready batteries inside it. <laughs> <laughs> these things give me pleasure. You know, it's just <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> That entire music comes from one guitar, multi-tracked and fitted with a device called a gizmo. The gizmo was devised by Lowell Cream and Kevin Godley of 10cc. This is the actual prototype that I had on my guitar. It's not been used for 40 years. But the electric motor is here. It's now got a drive cable, a little cable, that makes this rotary cog here spin. And every time I press one of those buttons, or all of them, they come down and the little rotary plectrums will strike the string. So I put it on the guitar and I could play like that. I could pick and hold one down and play, or I could hold, hold the chord down. I had it going and even pluck other top lines. And, and then I learned to play it. Charlie, could you tell us about the wonderful creation that is XTC, This Is Pop? Yeah, well, th- th- this is interesting because I I always felt um, for me humour is is quite an important part of. Uh, I didn't actually realise this until quite recently that a lot of the bands that I like, there is an element of humour there. You mm-hmm. know, going right back to the the Beatles when, um, and and the Monkeys that you know formative influences when I was a kid. Yes. Um, and you know, Ten CC obviously fit very much into that. You know, they they had so much wit in their songs. Um, and as 10CC went into, in my eyes, a decline, it was exactly the point when XTC arrived. Mm. Uh, and the, for me, they filled that gap of fun, fizzy, witty pop. Yes. You know what I mean? They, they were like a, they were like 10CC reborn in, in a sort of punk milieu um mm-hmm. although great I, point um although I, I found that andy didn't actually like 10 cc um and, really but he when he saw our documentary he changed his mind um wow. and he said he he's he, he'd always thought they were kind of over ornamental it's the thing he didn't like about them but having seen the film he he kind of reappraised them and that was one of the things that persuaded him to throw his lot in with us. Because he, when I first got in touch with him, he, he was even more difficult 
to persuade than Eric. He just he he hates rock documentaries, as he says at the beginning of the film. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he just and and he's kind of right that they are so many of them are full of awful cliches, um, and they follow the same tropes. Um, and that rock and roll bollocks, as he <laughs> says. Uh, and, and they always end up with them all falling out with each other. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's exactly the kind of stuff that I didn't want to, to make uh, and in any of our films, really. So um, I kind of had to persuade him. But it was, it, he, he liked the film, so that was a start. Um, but he also he had certain things that he didn't, didn't want in, in a film about XTC. He, he really didn't want to appear in it. He, he was like, I, I don't, I hate seeing old, you know, bald, fat rock stars in their dosage. You know, it's it's a young man's game, and um, I'd rather see. He, he, no, he had kind of mad ideas that he he wanted them to be represented by Japanese models. You know, female <laughs> Japanese models. So, um, it's just all kinds of crazy stuff. Was, so was it his mad idea to have? XDC as part of a train set. No, that was my idea. It's genius, by the way. Thank you. Well, um, it, I had various ideas because I was I was trying to think. Okay, I've really got to do justice to to Andy's um, idea that he he doesn't he wants to appear in it as little as possible, um, and we've got to make this visually interesting. That was his worry. He said, "There's a bit like 10CC, apart from a few crappy videos and top of the pops appearances." There's there's not really much there. Um, how can we make this visually interesting? Um, my first idea was to resurrect Camberwick Green. Do you remember that kid show? Oh yes, not yeah. Um Where at the beginning they all, all the characters emerge out of that kind of musical box. Mm. Um, Here is a box. Here is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. But this box can hide a secret inside. Can you guess what is in it today? Yeah, that's it. Uh, Windy Miller and people like yes, that. Yes, yes. And I just thought if, um, if we can get the guy who made the Camberwick characters to make... Uh, XTC characters. Um, there was something about it that was so English that I thought it would really suit them. And I discovered that he's still alive, or at least he was at the time. He may not be now. Is it was it Ivor Postgate who, who did the animation? I can't remember. Uh, that doesn't ring a bell. I, I can't remember his name now. Mm-hmm. But um, I was I was about to get in touch with him when I mean it was almost unbelievable what happened next. Literally the next week, Radiohead brought out a single using the Camberwick Green characters. Wow. In their video. I mean, it was the most bizarre coincidence. Wow. I was like, <laughs> you know, this hasn't been seen for years, this kid's yeah. show, and they've had the same idea. How is that possible? So that screwed that idea up. Um, so I then got to thinking, well, what else is very XTC? Models and train sets. Um, you know, the train motifs run through yes. quite a lot of their stuff. Um, yeah, Big Express and all Big the rest Express, of it. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Andy loves little models. Then that whole thing started to form about filming a miniature train set. And I found this one in Oxfordshire called Pendant, which is absolutely beautiful. 
and as luck would have it, the, the week I went there, um, they had had a visit from this guy who, who did 3D models scanning a real person. So you mm. get his iPad, scan you, front, back, sides, and then it um, prints out on a, a plastic printer an exact replica of, of whatever you scan. Good grief, I was going to ask you about that, because I assume that, that you basically got someone with a very steady hand and several shades of humbrol. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the guy with the very steady hand was the guy who had to paint them. Yes. Uh, but the actual printing is done in seconds. Um, That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, so we scanned all four of them um, in different positions, some with the guitar, some Terry with the drum, <laughs> uh, some of them walking, some of them standing, so that we could just yeah. use them in different situations on on the train set um huh. and and then this guy paul painstakingly painted them all um and then we put them into practice and then the idea also i had was to to film parts of the uh, the marlborough downs and parts of swindon and and so that you weren't quite sure whether you were looking at a train set or a model mm. or, mm -hmm. or real countryside or real swindon um <laughs> and mix it all up together Wow. It's, it's great. And you use that effect. You see it. It seems to have come to prominence over the past few years where it's something to do with depth of field or focus, whereby a real landscape can be made to look like a model by... Is it, is it the way your, your eyes are fooled by changing the depth of field or something like that? That's exactly it. Yeah. Right. right, um, right. And, it's, uh, and so there's one or two transitions um, where mm -hmm. it goes from um, the countryside to... Um, the the model um, mm. of the countryside in Pendon, which I mean, it's a spectacular place. It's so beautiful. And we spent a day filming there. Um, I had a nightmare at the beginning because I could not get the little figures to stand up. They kept falling over, um, <laughs> especially when they were on the train. Um, and yeah. I was like, jeez, what am I going to do here? Um, right. And so I drove um, to the nearest post office and, and got a Pritt stick. And, <laughs> and, and that did the trick um, and stuck them to wherever they were. And that Because I was thinking that we were going to have a complete wasted day here. Oh, fantastic. Was there any feeling of sort of synergy uh, w with XTC being almost your local band from, from your childhood? Um, yeah, definitely. From a similar, a similar neck of the woods, I, I guess. To yeah, although actually I grew up in Somerset, but um, yeah, not far. Um, mm. Yeah, that, that uh, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, Andy always felt that their accents, um, and this is something that I think a lot of people have, I mean, I don't have a West Country accent, but you know, I think a lot of people from the West Country do sometimes feel they're not taken seriously mm, um, yeah. because of the accent. And Andy definitely felt that in you know, um, in the rock and roll world, having mm. a, a West Country accent um, is not cool, um, and they were never cool really. Um, but you know, who cares? Um, no, indeed. Same reason. Same reason. Uh Darth Vader couldn't have uh, Dave Prowse's voice, I suppose. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I, I, one of the things, I, I, I did have slight misgivings initially about taking on the project 
um, because I just thought, you know, there isn't really that much of a story here, unlike the 10CC one, where there is mm-hmm. a good story. XTC were a band that just made great music, but there wasn't much of a story other than the the musical journey that they took. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I suppose there's um, Andy's angst with, with performing, I guess, is, is a powerful emotional centre, isn't it? Yes, it is. And But, I mean, the thing that I hung on to was that I just felt um, Andy was our trump card because, mm. you know, when in that brief period when they were in the charts, I would occasionally hear him on <coughs> radio shows, things like, um, what was that one, um, Round Table, where they used to review the, the, the week's singles. Yeah. Um, and I remember hearing him on that once, and I just thought he's, he's, he's another one of those people, like Kevin, that you, you just you, you listen to him. He's funny, and he's yeah. interesting. He's got opinions. And I remember there was a there was a, a single that week from a band called Windjammer, and Andy said, <laughs> it "Sounds I like." I remember a, it. Yeah, I, I remember. Sorry, you go on, go on. And, I remember this. And Andy said it sounds like a cure for flatulence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that I like this guy, um, and and I just thought he. If you could ever get him to sit down and talk, um, mm. he would just be a great interview. And I spent, I mean, that interview I, I did with him, I did two interviews with him, but the main one, which takes up the majority of the documentary, mm-hmm. was about three and a half hours long. Um, right. And wow. he, he was absolutely gold. He yeah. was just brilliant. He's just like Kevin in many ways, isn't he? Because his sentences are so beautifully formed it, with this kind of not bitter but kind of there's a, be- a lovely kind of joyous cynicism in everything he says uh, and it's it's delicious yeah and and um he, he he the same as kevin he's got this turn of phrase it's almost yeah. he, he's thinking of, his mind works in a slightly sort of skewed way and he's, he he loves wordplay and he's almost thinking about it as he's saying it you know it's like that bit where he says yeah. It sounded medieval, bloody evil. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, pun- he's punning him- with himself all the time, isn't he? I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? Because he is a performer. I mean, he, he might be performing for a very small audience or even one camera, but he, he's just got something special about the way he projects himself, or always has. Yes. So It's so in- entertaining to watch. I mean, he could have had a career... Not a comedian, perhaps, as a panelist, as a as a raconteur, if he'd wished. Have you have you seen that footage, Charlie, of him fronting a, a kids show, a kids quiz show? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I went to an XTC convention. God, I think it must be nineteen ninety one, and uh, he they BBC, I guess, filmed a a pilot, you know, a proper show with kids and kids in the audience of him basically presenting a, a kids quiz show and i don't think it was ever made i don't know why but they showed this whole thing at the uh, at the convention it was bloody hilarious <laughs> uh, because he had just that mischievous naughty way with the with, with the contestants you know it was so he could have done so, so many things if he'd wished hello and welcome to master peace theater uh it's andy partridge here that was um since it's working overtime a lovely little ditty from the English Settlement, or English Sediment album. Uh, you're going to be getting a, a new one. Yes, brand spanking new, and we English love to spank. 
It's King for a Day, sung by the gloriously gifted Colin, your hostess for tonight. He's, he's, he's fascinating. I mean, I, I've stayed in touch with him since then. Um, and he's just, he's just a, you know, a really fascinating guy. You know, he has mm. opinions on... You can, you can spend hours on the phone with him. Um, yeah. Just shooting the breeze, and he's. he's mm. I, I'm just really, really glad to have got to know him because he's he's a great guy. No, oh, absolutely, and I'm I'm so so envious. Can I just say that, um, just from the the opening seconds of the film, uh, which I think is possibly my favourite opening sequence of any music documentary I've seen, it's so Andy <laughs> Partridge. How he comes on and basically says that all documentaries are shit. Um, what well, he's kind of he's breaking it apart. He's so iconoclastic, isn't he, Andy Partridge? And he's subverting everything, um, kind of breaking your expectations before you've even got any. And um, if I could, if if I can in, indulge myself for a second, I uh, I've been really enjoying reading this book recently. Um, it's a, a book called Vinyl Album Cover Art: The Complete Hypnosis Catalogue. And there's a, a really fascinating section on. Uh, XDC's Go To album, and where, of course, the, the famous album cover, which is basically just Storm's um, kind of off the top of his head analysis of what the record cover is and what its job is, which is a, a wonderfully cynical thing to put on a record sleeve. It's like a, a whole paragraph, almost a, a whole page of, of A4. It's so XDC, it's so Andy Partridge. And it chimed with me. The reason I mention it, Charlie, is because the start of your film reminded me of that album cover. In oh, that yeah. it's right. it's turning it's turning your expectations of that iconography completely on their head. Oh, rock documentaries, rockumentaries. I really dislike them. They get these old fights waffling. Oh, the amount of drugs we took on the road. Oh, the amount of women we shagged. Oh, it's great, wasn't it? It's just a long procession of talking heads. Oh, I used to be their roadie. Oh, I used to live next door to the bass player's cousin. They always have that lugubrious keyboard player from that prog rock group. Oh, yeah, XTC. I, I remember XTC. Don't you dare have him in this documentary. It's always the same faces. It's always the same tales. It never has a good ending. They always fall out with each other. They're always suing each other. Uh, one of them dies or two of them dies or they all die. And they all can't stand the sight of each other anymore. Ooh, stop! No, and I, I think you're absolutely right. And and he, I mean, we probably um, we probably put ourselves out of business putting out that film because <laughs> I think you know the music documentaries um, have kind of tailed off a bit in in recent years um, because I think people have become aware of the cliches that Andy was exposing, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it is. You know, it's hard now to to find a subject a that hasn't been done before, but also to do it in a way that's interesting and that doesn't mm. fall into those traps. And I think Andy was very much aware the way he put his music together was very much a part of that. You know, he he just was obsessed with not with avoiding cliches, and that you know, there's that bit in the film where he where they auditioned Dave Gregory. <laughs> And he starts earning, <laughs> yeah. um, and he's like, 
you know, we don't want that. You know, just do anything, but don't do blues cliches. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and 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 that runs through everything. Everything, all his songs are just kind of unique, aren't they? Yes, the, the, absolutely. The, sec- the sections where he actually dis- he he's one of the few people that can really almost explain what it's like to write a song because that's such a slippery context. I mean, that's obviously the the section about senses working overtime is great, but even more fascinating is the section where he kind of you know, finds a chord uh, and 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 writes off the top of his head this kind of little fragment of a song. Let me find a chord that I've never played in my life. Um, let me see. Uh... No, that's a bit wrong. Ooh. See that to me suggests a pool of, of of like a puddle, like a pool of muddy water. So if I was working from the synesthesia point, the song would have to be involving this muddy water in some way. I'm do, I've never done this before in my life. Okay, so not not this this song or what I'm about to sing or anything or say or the words or anything. But there is the muddiest of water. There is the deepest of pools. So it's to me it suggests I, that's a lovely chord. Actually, I'm not going to forget that. But that's that's I'd no idea what that chord is called. Or I've never played it before. When he was doing that, I, I literally was like, hat, the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. I, I was thinking, yeah, this is this is yeah. absolute gold dust here because you're, it really you're is. seeing the creative process in real time. Amazing, um, isn't it? Uh, amazing. And Andy, uh, you know, there's a lot of musicians who who hate to break apart the creative process because they think they will ruin it if they mm-hmm. if they analyze it too much and he's completely the opposite he loves to take it apart he loves to take apart the clock to see how all the pieces fit together he mm-hmm. so he he's he's that's why he's so interesting to talk to about the songwriting process because he doesn't mind um pulling it apart and, and seeing mm-hmm. seeing how it all works a hundred percent. And fascinating hearing him talk about synesthesia and, and him saying, you know, for him, you know, a piece of music could be a colour or, you know, a taste or whatever. Um, and the fact that he, he thinks visually, he thinks in terms of, you know, senses. I'm not I'm gonna not going to make the obvious pun there. But it reminds me of the Godly and Cream approach in that they, particularly what they were doing on Consequences, was completely visual and sensual, wasn't it? Sure. It was. The funny thing, the ironic thing for me of consequences is that the songs, never mind the instrumental stuff, but the songs on consequences are actually relatively conventional. If they presented them to Eric and Graham, I, I they wouldn't have gone, oh, that's, that's too way out for us. They would have fitted in. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's kind of 
it's 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 strange when you think that that was the album that split them apart but actually the songs they were writing at that time would would have fitted quite happily into a 10 cc album 100 percent. good point Mm. Um, we, we haven't mentioned Colin Moulding, have we, in this? And I, I love the dialectic between the, the sort of spiky partridge and the sort of the calm man in his potting shed. Do you know what I mean? Tending my fruit, tending my fruit Now you've got to have a hobby A man must have a shed to keep him sane Spray my butt, spray my butt, got to keep away diseases. I mix the poisons and the wife don't complain. Colin Moulding strikes me as a very serene individual. Is that how he came across in person? Yeah, very much. Very, very mild. Quite, um, you know, a family man. Um, I would say very sure of his place in the world. Um, not not angsty um, and very comfortable in his own skin um, not particularly driven to be a star quite happy pottering about turning out a song every now and then yeah um, and you know most of his songs focus on minutiae don't they the little things yes it kind mm. of quite quite homely sort of themes aren't they mm-hmm and um, you know he he did get together again with with Terry. Um, they they did a few concerts. I went to one of them. Um, yeah. Okay. And he he played just just his XTC songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and having done it for a bit, he just decided, you know what, I I'm, I don't really want this anymore. I'm quite happy just being at home. So, you know, he's he's quite happy with what he achieved. Um, Terry, on the other hand, I think. You know, really missed being in a band, um, so he's mm. he's back out there again. Mm. Yeah, it was great to have all the protagonists. Well, with the exception of Barry, I suppose. Did you did you approach Barry, or was there some problem yeah. there with? No, I did approach him, and he just said he he, he didn't want to be involved. Um, right. we, we were very lucky with Terry because he'd been living in Australia for thirty years. Yeah, and, and he came back just as we started making the film. Um, oh, great. came back to live in Swindon so that was a real stroke of luck saved us a bit of an airfare yeah it's so odd am I right in thinking the four of them still live in Swindon am I wrong or am I it's absolutely isn't that, right they, isn't that they, incredible they all wow. live within about I don't know five <laughs> miles of each other it's quite bizarre wow. um, I think it, a little bit like with Ringo and the Beatles all of them still see Terry you know he's right. the but the others, there's, yeah, relationships yeah. have slightly broken down. Yeah. Right, right. Inevitably. Yeah. Not so that they don't <laughs> communicate. They, they still communicate. But. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Tell us, Charlie, uh, about your XTC Desert Island slip disc. Are you, are you like me? Can you not decide <clears throat> between Skylarking and Apple Venus? Where, where, do, you, where do you sit? Okay, so I've done another of my um, imaginary albums here. Because I feel, and I know that Dave Gregory agrees with me on this, what they should have done is put out the best of Apple, Venus and Wasp Star on um. one album. And I have, I've done that. I've put like a 12-track uh, album of the best of those two 
and it is an absolute masterpiece. Yes, um, it is just astonishingly brilliant. So that would that would be my favourite album if it existed. difficult picking my favorite album of theirs because to me what XTC represent more than anything else is that their best songs are kind of celebrations of life that they he does that better than almost anyone um, mm. the sort of joy of being alive yes you know, things like Garden of Earthly Delights mm. um, that so, I mean look half of oranges and lemons is probably the best stuff they've done but then also, none such is mm. packed with brilliant songs. Uh, it, it's very hard. I, I find it hard to do it because I, I love, you know, drums and wires. Um, is, is is a wonderful album. Mm. And, and and of course you love English Settlement as well. Not so much. Okay. Yeah, I find that one hard. Actually, uh, apart apart from the singles, maybe. I, I I like side one, and then after that, I find it gets a bit turgid. Some of it. Right. You've not mentioned Skylarking. Sky, Skylarking, I, 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 I think is um, not necessarily their best songs. It's got some great songs on it, but it's probably the the best sounding. And you have to give yeah. Todd Rundgren credit for that because the arrangements on that are sensational. No, I agree. I, I, I love the kind of I love that such colourful psychedelic production, isn't it? And I'm I'm, I'm glad that. Somehow he and Andy were able to kind of keep the hatchet in the cupboard, shall we say? <laughs> I know. Did you approach? Did you approach Todd? Yes, knowing that he wouldn't. <laughs> 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 but I thought I'd try anyway. Yeah. I guess it's the one subject he's he's not liable to to come on and talk about. But uh... I mean, we're we're about to hear from my outtakes from LOL. Uh, there's some yeah. great outtakes from Andy, and there's also a lot of stuff that I wish I could have used from the Stephen Wilson interview, where we right. um, we broke apart the because he had all the master tapes mm. um, on his computer, and he just he pulled them apart, and it was fascinating talking about it. But it was just we couldn't get it in. Um, yeah. But one day maybe we'll get it out there. Just just one. Just one brief thing on on sort of XTC albums. Sorry, just to indulge myself slightly. I would go further on the Apple Venus thing. You're probably aware of this, um, Charlie. There was a kind of bootleg floating around, probably about 1993 or four, because they or sometime like that they'd recorded, as you know, a lot of or Andy had recorded a lot of Apple Venus on his own when they were on strike and weren't able to actually record as XTC. I don't know whether you've heard a compilation of his solo recordings of what became Apple Venus and Wasp Star and some other stuff like Prince of Orange. And I was, somebody dubbed me a cassette. And this, to my mind, was the sort of masterpiece XTC album. But I don't think either Colin or Dave were actually on it. I think it should right. have been a solo album. H A T E is that how you spell love in your I see K pronounced as Kai. 
and by the time they actually came to put it out it had become slightly overcooked and they'd waited so long and the spontaneity to I, that collection of songs and i still have the cassette somewhere is just stunning yeah um, wow i know I it is extraordinary hear, isn't it? he he got better and better he as, did, a, didn't he? as a guitarist to yes, the point yes. where uh, <laughs> i mean dave's a, a fabulous guitarist and they are different yeah but yeah, it was yeah. almost like he didn't really need him um, anymore. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I've I've been privileged to spend quite a lot of time in Andy's um, front room where he he's played me songs that he's written for other people, um, mm. which didn't get used. Um, and and the the standard of them is just ridiculous. And you just mm. think, how could these people have not used them? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, yeah, but he has very high standards of himself, so he's not prepared to let things out if he's if he's not absolutely one hundred percent sure about them. And and that's the reason why he's always resisted reforming XTC because he he just yeah. feels that I, he doesn't want to tarnish what they created. Yeah. Um and he 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 actually felt that you know with Wasp Star they were just beginning to decline. Um, and yeah, like, maybe that that's that's the point where I want to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I just want to mention how the the film really swells to an emotional conclusion. This lovely idea of having some of the interviewees just recite a couple of couplets from their favourite lyrics, whilst you see this, you know, the cameras hanging over the the, the countryside. Was, oh, was that was that footage specially made? You know, did you you filmed it specially? Yes. Did you? Yeah. I mean, I, I had that idea to get all of our interviewees to to choose uh, a favourite lyric before right. before we actually met up. I, I, I'd said, look, oh, okay. just pick something and then I'll get you to recite it. And I wasn't right. quite sure how I was going to use it. Um, and mm-hmm. then I just, um, when this, this guy we found um, who lived in Swindon, um, who had a drone camera, well, it wasn't actually one of our own cameramen, um, mm-hmm. He offered to to shoot it for us, um, right. and did a you know a lovely job. And we we asked him to shoot certain areas, um, and obviously the horse. Um, yeah. And and then when we had all that footage back, um, it just struck me that it would work really nicely to have all those lyrics being recited as we floated over the countryside, and. And I was really pleased with how it came out, because you're right, it, it is actually quite emotional, isn't it? It, it, it really is. is. It, it sort of lifts off with Rook, you know, almost, and mm. then th- that's explicitly talking about climbing over the countryside, and then it and then it expands. It really yeah. is quite it, it, beautiful. It's so beautiful. It, it reminds me of, of the feeling I get when I listen to Chalk Hills and Children. It's that, that kind of level of beauty. Yeah. We, we, we did a, a showing of it in London. Dave came, Terry came, Stephen Wilson came various other people Trevor Horn was there mm. and um, and Stephen Wilson came up to me afterwards and he said I I was I was choking up at the end there yeah oh. <laughs> he was really yeah, welling yeah. up because um, he said you know XTC means so much to him S-H- Thanks uh, so much, Charlie. I mean, uh, it was a big influence on us, uh, your film. The, the great 
Stockport Bake Off is, you know, I mean, it's shot with a, a single handheld camera on a budget of 40 quid. Uh, so we'll in no way compare the two films, but your whole approach, the reflexiveness of the documentary, the fact that it so beautifully refers to itself all the time was, was a, a massive influence on on what we tried to get across. So that's a, another thank you, basically. Cheers. Thank you. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening